Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 39 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Ousted by Riots, the Ministry Continues where we'll discuss Acts chapter 19, verse 23, through chapter 20, verse 12. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, the entire book of Acts is about the advance of the gospel from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And part of it is to give us a sense of the opposition and the difficulty that we're going to face as we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. What's interesting here in this chapter is a riot of extremely passionate religionists of a religion that's now obsolete. There's no one on earth that follows Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, And yet those people were absolutely passionately committed to her. And so what that shows me is, is we're going to face, as we share the gospel, we're gonna face people who are extremely passionate about faulty worldviews. Uh, even false religions. Um, They'll be fanatical, like we see fanatical Hindus in India, fanatical Muslims in many parts of the world who are passionately committed. And even in our country, passionate secularists who have a very different worldview than us and are much more intense and perhaps even enraged with fists in the air. We're gonna see some of that today. And as Paul doesn't actually do much in this riot, um, but is protected um, by God, what's really on display here is the corrupt hearts of people who are following an idol and how difficult it is for us to share the gospel in a situation like that. Also in the account we're looking at after that, we see some of Paul's shepherding heart as he continues to minister, more opposition um, as the Jews form a plot against him, and then a miraculous uh, raising of Eutychus from the dead, the power of the gospel at work through Paul. So there's a lot to cover today. Let me go ahead and read the account in chapter 19, verse 23, through chapter 20, verse 12. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with the hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, 
He said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Andy, who was Demetrius, and what does Luke tell us about him as this account begins? Yeah, Demetrius was a craftsman uh, who made little silver shrines that imitated, I think, the shape of the temple of Artemis to the Ephesians. Now, this whole account is centered on this grand structure, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So this is an architectural wonder, a massive building complex mm. and a great moneymaker. Um, the, the whole city, the whole region profited from the pilgrims that would travel from all over the world to see one of these wonders of the ancient world. And so there's a great deal of civic pride. There's a great deal of money involved. But specifically, Demetrius uh, made money off of the little silver shrines that he made and sold, um, as you could imagine, like a concession stand or something like that. And so his business is being hurt by the progress of the gospel. So that's who Demetrius is. He's very angry about a loss of revenue. This is very similar to Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, where there was a, a demon-possessed slave girl who made money for her owners by fortune-telling. And when Paul drove the demon out, they lost money. And so it's the same motive here is a loss of revenue. It's amazing this idolatry is really at the root of both the religious and the business aspects of Demetrius's opposition mm -hmm. of Paul. What does this show us about the obstacle of idolatry and particularly money in the advance of the gospel? Well, it's interesting just the, those two terms, idolatry and money. I mean, the single greatest idol in the world is money. Um, and so they, they really are woven together. And so 
there is no greater obstacle to the spread of the gospel than idolatry. As a matter of fact, it's the fundamental issue of the human heart. And what is idolatry? Romans chapter one captures it in this way. It is worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator who mm. is to be praised forever. And so these folks are worshiping a false goddess but they're also worshiping money. And no one directly worships money, but they worship the pleasure that the money can bring them through food or through through a nice house or, or rich clothing. The lifestyle is what they're worshiping. Fundamentally, they're worshiping their own pleasures. Their God is their stomach. So that's really what's going on here is there's a false religious system around Artemis of the Ephesians, but there's also fundamentally an issue of money, covetousness, and idolatry. What steps does Demetrius take to try to stop Paul? And what do we learn about Paul and his ministry in verses 25 through 27? Well, he starts with his fellow craftsmen because they would share his concerns. And they're saying, look, we're losing money. I mean, this guy Paul has come here. This fellow Paul, verse 26, has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus and in the whole region. So he's testifying in in verse 26 of how successful Paul has been in preaching the gospel. And he says, fundamentally, he actually gets the message right. He says, man-made gods or no gods at all. Mm. That's true. That's exactly uh, what he's preaching. You know, sometimes Paul gets slandered and, and misrepresented. Not this time. Um, he actually is saying your religion is of no account at all. And we saw that in, in his uh, preaching in Athens as well. So fundamentally, uh, Demetrius sees a financial threat and he starts with his fellow craftsmen and gets them riled up. They begin uh, being angry and they're the ones that start the riot. Yeah, so what was their reaction, these workmen or these craftsmen, and why did they specifically grab Gaius and Aristarchus? Well, they begin getting enraged. Demetrius has said there's a danger not only that the, that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis itself will be discredited and the goddess herself will be stripped of her honor, robbed of her divine majesty. All of that happened. You know, it reminds me of Stephen saying that Jesus has come to change the customs Moses handed down to us. Actually, that was true. Mm. Um, and so in this case, it was true um, that Artemis would lose her glory and she has been completely displaced. No one worships Artemis or if they do, they're just they're eccentrics um, seeking out some covert, strange, mystical religion of the past. But she's not popular at all. So that's what he says. And then the craftsmen agree that this is a threat and they begin shouting. And they're shouting this slogan, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. They're mm. shouting in, in with rage. Uh, there's a great deal of passion. Now, here's the thing. We in our pluralistic society, we f we say all the time, people's religion should be respected, that all religions are equally valid, uh, that people's religious passions should be respected, that that the fact that people get very upset or, or very distressed or very passionate about their religion uh, should be honored and respected, and we should not be inciting uh, those kinds of passions. But the fundamental fact here is that their passions are based on a lie. They're based on a false faith. I think these people really did believe in Artemis. They really did believe in the supernatural origin of their religion, which we can discuss in a minute, having to do with the image that fell from the sky. I do believe that behind all religious systems are supernatural beings that are God and goddess impersonators, and the Bible calls them demons. And so I do believe there is a demonic origin to this religion and that they were demonically incited. And so we see these kinds of, of passions um, incited. You can see this sometimes uh, when something 
motivates a Muslim crowd and a bunch of Muslims stream out in the streets and chant for hours uh, out of zeal for Allah and for his prophet Muhammad. And they'll, they'll just go crazy over it. So we see that similar passion here. So they're chanting, great is Artemis the Ephesians, and they want to displace um, what Paul has been preaching. Yeah, so it says in verse 29 that the city was filled with confusion. They rushed mm -hmm. together into the theater, and they drag with them these two men, Gaius mm -hmm. and Aristarchus. Right. Who are they, and why do they go after them? Well, Paul has traveling companions, disciples. Um, they're people that help him in his ministry. We're going to see them again in chapter 20, some others uh, that are listed there at length, which you heard read earlier. And so these are just individuals who are with Paul. They're Paul's mm -hmm. disciples and co-workers, and they drag them. They're from Macedonia, that north, northern region of the, of, of the Greek, uh, Greek peninsula. Um, and so they rush into the uh, amphitheater where they're shouting this slogan, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. So I think they intend to do them physical harm. Mm. They want to beat them up or maybe even kill them. So what did take place in the theater? How would you describe this assembly? It seems like it's growing. It's not just the craftsmen or these workmen, but it's a growing crowd. How would you describe this assembly and what happens in that well, theater? Well, they're, they're out of their minds. I mean, they, they're, it's definitely a mob mentality. We're going to see in a minute where it says some of them don't even know why they're there. Hmm. And they're willing to chant the slogan because they believe the same. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're, they're going crazy. They're chanting this. Now, Artemis was the goddess of the hunt, as I remember. Um, and she is respected in that regard as one of the pantheon of gods and goddesses that the Greeks worship and the Romans picked up on them, um, polytheism. And so the way polytheism worked is that each of the gods or goddesses would be assigned a certain area of concern or focus. And that's what Artemis was, the goddess of the hunt. Um, but they're chanting this and they're going crazy. And so they want to uh, do harm to Gaius and Aristarchus. And so to answer your question, the the mob mentality is at work here. The people are, are pretty much out of their minds. And strangely and amazingly, Paul wants to go in and talk to them. Yeah. So Paul wants to go in and essentially try to help his friends, it seems. Sure. But his friends stop him. And even some of the provincial officials beg him not to go. Mm -hmm. What does this teach us about courage and wisdom in missions and evangelism? Well, here's the thing. Paul is clearly ready to die. And he says that multiple times. He's ready to lay down his life for Christ. He's ready to die. And so he doesn't, it's not like he doesn't know what's going on in there. Hmm. Uh, we're going to see him. I mean, it's interesting how Paul is connected with three different riots in the book of, in the book of Acts. It's incredible. I mean, I don't know anybody that has ever incited a riot um, personally. I mean, you hear about these things, but it's just incredible. I just think it's part of Satan's attack on Paul. Mm. It's a demonic attack. And at this point, Paul wants to go in, and, and what he's going to do in, in Acts 22 with the riot in Jerusalem is he's going to motion for them to be quiet, and he begins speaking to them in Aramaic, and they do get quiet. Um, I think he imagines that he'll be able to quiet them down, and I think he intends to preach the gospel to them. So he is incredibly bold. He has literally no fear of losing his life. Mm. But... The wisdom here, I think this is probably the clearest application of Jesus' statement. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Any chance that was going to happen here? I think it would have happened. Yeah. I don't think they would have given Paul 10 seconds. Um, once they saw who he was and they heard his message, they would have gone after him. And so it's it's fascinating to me how Paul is, is bold, but... 
not wise in this one one respect. This was not the way God ordained for him to die. He still had um, he still had a mission to uh, to fulfill, and that is to preach the gospel to Caesar. And so he doesn't even know that. It's not that clear yet. But um, when he was baptized. Um, Ananias was told that he is my chosen instrument, carrying my name before the Gentiles and their kings mm. and before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So he's ready to go in there and preach the gospel boldly. But instead, God moves on these, these Asiarchs, they're called, the word ark means ruler, rulers of Asia. These are government officials, uh, officials of the province who have befriended Paul and they think well of Paul. It doesn't mm. say they're converts yet, but they're maybe seekers and they're listening to Paul and they're like, do not go in there. I'm telling you, you go in there, you're going to die. And so they do what they need to do to keep him from going into the theater. So Paul does not go in among the crowd as he had hoped he might, but there is another who addresses the crowd. What does the episode with Alexander teach us about attitudes toward the Jews in the ancient world, and what does the two-hour chant about Artemis teach us about idolatry and the human soul and the psychology of a crowd? So this man, Alexander, is Jewish. It doesn't say anything about his relationship with the gospel, so we have to assume that he's not a follower of Christ. But he's a Jewish man who would have agreed with Paul on the issue of idolatry. And the Jews were were monotheists and were against idol, idolatry, against idols. And so he's going to go speak, and just as he's about to speak, the people realize who he is and that he's Jewish, and they start chanting like maniacs. They're just out of their minds for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it says the assembly's in confusion, verse 32. Some were shouting one thing, some another, and most of the people didn't even know why they're there. And so it's just mob mentality. They're out of their minds. I think Satan is stirring them up through demonic um, uh, incitement in their minds, et cetera, and they're and they're ready to kill this guy Alexander, hmm. and um, they're just chanting, you know, passionately concerning Artemis. So again, as I've studied and thought about emotion, emotion is always based on perceived truth, not necessarily truth. So people can be very upset about some news they receive that isn't even true. Hmm. Um, they can think that somebody in their family has died and they get this false information and they're weeping and it's reasonable based on what they think is true, but the whole thing isn't true. Mm. And so here, this whole religion isn't true and look how passionate they are over it. So uh, emotions, you see this in Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel, where there's women mourning for Tammuz. It was a, uh, an idolatrous pagan story that captivated the hearts of Jewish women and they were mourning for this goddess Tammuz uh, who had died in some tragedy and according to the myth and there and you know God shows Ezekiel look at these women mourning over Tammuz and so their mourning is completely inappropriate it's wicked even uh, it's just a display of the idolatry of the Jews in the book of Ezekiel so here we have these people that are passionate over a lie so in the next scene, we meet another character in this account, and that's the city clerk. What approach does this city clerk use to try to bring an end to this riot here? 
Well, first of all, fundamentally looming behind all of this are the Romans. And the Romans do not take kindly to city disorder. They are going to come in and crush them. And they're they're very aware of this. The Romans Romans need peace and quiet because they want they want revenues to come in. They don't want to have to bring in more troops to quiet a city. And so fundamentally if there are riots, the Romans are going to squash it. And so the city clerk uh, has the authority to quiet the crowd. They look on him as an ally. And if you look at what he says, he is. Um, he believes in their religion. And so he quiets the crowd and says, men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Now, I don't know anything about this. Maybe some archaeologists can give us some insights. I can kind of figure it out. It's kind of like when, I don't know, people see the face of Jesus in a tortilla or something like that, or, or there's some other amazing thing that becomes part of mythology. Mm. And But I do believe that there's a regular pattern of supernatural origins to false religions. I think you see that with Islam, where an angelic figure basically assaults Muhammad in the cave mm. and tells him to recite, and he, the Quran comes from that. Um, Joseph Smith had, uh, he said, an encounter with an angel who dictated the Book of um, Mormon to him. Um, and so a lot of these religions have supernatural origins. So my guess is that the Lord permitted demons uh, to craft some kind of a likeness of, of Artemis in a chunk of meteorite or something that fell down. Someone saw it, picked it up, maybe it was hot. And then it, they looked and said, look at this. And mm. then it became um, basically like a relic or something like that that was put up at the center. And they built this whole this whole shrine around it that became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So at any rate, people want to be near that kind of thing. There is, I believe, a supernatural origin that, that gods and goddesses are impersonated by demons. And so this guy says, look, everybody knows this. Mm. Hey, look. We're not, we're not going to lose our secure position. He's very cocky, very <laughs> confident. It's like, everybody knows this. I mean, nothing's going to happen. Mm. Artemis is going to win. So just calm down. You ought to be quiet. These fa Verse 36, what does your translation say? Mine says, these facts are undeniable. These things cannot be denied. Well, there it is. <laughs> Only they can be. So right. at any rate, that's who this guy is. And he said, look, you, since everybody knows this, I don't understand why you're so upset. You're acting like, like we're in, we should be insecure or worried. There's nothing mm. to worry about here. So calm down. <laughs> Besides which, let's keep in mind what's going on here. If you don't do that, the Romans are going to come in and, and crush us. We're going to be in danger of being charged with rioting, which is exactly what they are doing. Mm. So he says, fundamentally here, I mean, these guys haven't done anything wrong. They've not committed any crimes. And if they have, their courts. And Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen can press charges. Yeah. Uh, but fundamentally, there's nothing here going on. So if you don't, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today, today's events, and we will not be able to account for it. So you know what's going to happen. The Romans are going to come in. So go home. And they do. So rather than, as some might say, putting the fear of God in them, he seeks to put the fear of Rome in them, <clears throat> saying, much, listen, yeah. we need to behave ourselves. And also he, like you said, believes the same things they do, it seems. Yeah. So he's trying to give them confidence, saying, don't worry about that. Yeah. It's not like one man is going to overturn all these things right. that we believe. Yeah, it's really interesting. He says, you know, there's no reason for this. You guys are upset for no no reason. And the fact is we know the truth mm. that Artemis is on our way out mm. and Christianity is going to win. So I find it very humorous that he's so cocky and confident about her 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 future as a goddess
So verse 41 concludes saying, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Chapter 20 begins, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Mm-hmm. How did Paul encourage these disciples, and why is the ministry of encouragement so vital in the Christian life? I think the reality, the fact is that they're, they're against some pretty passionate opposition. And so, again, it's similar to what had been done earlier um, with Paul and, and Barnabas, you know, going through and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. It's not going to be easy. And so let's let's be mindful, let's be aware, but we're on the right side. Uh, this is the true religion. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for sins and was raised from the dead. You are following the true God, and this life will lead to eternal life in heaven. But you are going to have difficulties. You're going to have problems. So I'm, I'm telling you, get ready for it. But be bold, be courageous. Follow my examples. I follow the example of Christ. So Paul can present to his uh, present himself as a role model of bold witnessing. But he says a lot of things to encourage the disciples and then says farewell. And we also learn at the beginning of this chapter that Paul spent three months in Greece. What did Paul spend his time doing while he was there? Well, I think the book of Romans gives us a sense of what Paul's teaching ministry was about. He's not like crafting new doctrines everywhere he went. Basically, what happened was he wanted to go to Rome and strengthen and encourage the church at Rome there. He said so that we may give and receive spiritual gifts, but Paul's spiritual gift specifically is doctrine, it's teaching. And instead of being able to go to Rome, he gave them a short summary of the teaching that he would have given them if he had been able to teach, and it's called the Book of Romans. So, and you could add all the other epistles as well, Ephesians, you know, Thessalonians, these are the doctrines he would teach. So if you wanna know Paul's doctrine, you're looking at the epistles, but especially Romans. So for three months going through the doctrines of the gospel, um, that's what he did. My guess is he met with them every evening. So after the work day, they would assemble in some place and he would, um, he would teach them the doctrine of Christianity. Now, at this point in our journey through the book of Acts, it's not really a surprise how verse 3 ends. What does the Jews plot against Paul as he was about to sail? Teach us about Paul and the Jews and the Christian life. Well, everywhere he goes, and Paul talks about the Jews many times in Thessalonians, he says, you know, they they anger God in, in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up the wrath of God to the limit. Uh, Jesus warned about these specific... Uh, uh, Jewish zealots who would be hostile to his own his own um, role as the Messiah. Hmm. He said, there will be some who will uh, oppose you in the synagogues, they'll fight you, and in doing so, they'll think they're serving God. Even some of them will try to kill you, in so doing, thinking they're serving God. And so Paul deals with that as well. So these Jews are fanatically committed to crushing out this, this heretical sect. Paul himself was one of them. Uh, when he was going from house to house seeking to destroy the church. So he understands it very well. But now he is the focus of this Jewish hostility to the gospel. What's the significance of the list of men in verse 4? And what does Paul's sending them ahead to Troas teach us about Paul's style of leadership and his approach to ministry? Well, earlier in this podcast, back in chapter 19, verse 29, we have Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions. Now we mention uh, them, uh, this list of names in chapter 20, verse 4. So these are men who we would consider to be disciples, followers of Paul. He is mentoring them and training them. 
And it reminds us of 2 Timothy 2, 2, which is that spiritual multiplication. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others as well. So that's that spiritual multiplication of four generations, Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others also, uh, four generations. And so here we have listed, and we, we're going to see some of these names at the end of the book of Romans, for example, or in other places. Paul frequently lists people he's worked with. So Paul made friendships. People liked him, and he liked them, and he invested with them. So these are friends, and he sends, he's accompanied by them and um, sends them on ahead uh, to Troas. What do we learn about Paul's journey and early church life from verses 6 and 7? Um, Paul sails from Philippi to Troas after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So they're continuing to follow the Jewish cycle of feasts and using them. Uh, this, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled, so Paul knows that you don't have to do these things, but he finds them useful. There's no reason not to do them. And so this is the Feast of Passover, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it was a chance to commemorate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so um, they they celebrate the Passover first, and then uh, they sail from Philippi to Troas, and they stay there seven days. So it gives a sense of the Jewish flavor still of much of the early church life that Paul uh, was living. What do we learn about Paul's teaching ministry from the story about Troas and Eutychus? All right, so Troas is a little town right on the coast of uh, modern-day Turkey, um, you know, heading up toward uh, Istanbul or Constantinople. Um, and so it's right on the edge. So one thing you do learn about how they traveled in the Mediterranean, they would hug the coast. They would bounce from, from. I mean, I don't think they ever sailed out into open water. I mean, they're always looking right there at the coast, and they just kind of crawl their way down the coastline, and they land at this place called Troas. And so they're there, and, and um, Paul wants to teach. That's what he has to offer. Now, he's not there very long. He's, it says he's, they stayed there seven days. And they gather together for Christian worship to break bread. So that's probably the communion or and or fellowship a fellowship meal. Uh, Paul uh, wants to speak to them, but he, and he knows they're going to leave the next day. And so he keeps on talking. He has a lot to say. Again, read the book of Romans if you want to know what he has to <laughs> his, say. His brief letter. Yeah, his that's brief right. letter. Right. He's going to walk through these things and the, and the people are learning and he's explaining these things and he's talking on and on until midnight. And, and then it, it sets the condition of the room. There are lamps in the room. It's warm. There's not a lot of air in there. It's crowded. And uh, they're all gathered in there. And so uh, we have set up the miracle that's about to happen. Andy, one other thing before we talk specifically about the miracle that takes place in this chapter. Even as I was reading earlier, I was struck by the fact that uh, the pronoun here changes and it talks about uh, we. So, mm -hmm. for instance, in verse 7, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together mm -hmm. to break bread. Is there something happening here that we should take note of before sure. we talk about the miracle at the end of the chapter? Right. I think whenever we see the word we, uh, most New Testament scholars believe that's Luke joining Paul's entourage. So Luke is there and then he's not. And Luke is there and then he's not. So you go back to uh, Luke's gospel, chapter one, verse one through four. So the introduction to the two volume set of Luke Acts. Um, Paul, I mean, sorry, Luke uh, basically did a lot of investigative work and would talk to eyewitnesses and gain accounts. So when he's not with them, he found out what happened. But then when he is with them, he says, we. So he's there along with Paul. He's joined Paul again for the journey back to Jerusalem. At the end of this passage, what does the miracle teach us about God and Paul and the early church? Mm -hmm. And what effect did this occasion have on the church 
where they were gathering. All right, so we've got this big crowd of people in this upper room, and this young man, Eutychus, is sleeping in the window. He's at the window, probably just get some fresh air. But because Paul talked on and on, there's just a realism here. Mm. For me as a preacher, I, I've often seen people nodding off. I don't know if they didn't get enough sleep the night before or if I'm doing a bad job or what's going on. But I take comfort from the fact that the greatest teacher in the history of the Christian church still put some people to sleep. So fundamentally, Eutychus has just about had it. He's run out of gas. And so he falls asleep, but he's propped up in the window and it's a very bad place to fall asleep. And as he falls asleep, he topples out of the window and falls a long distance down to the ground and dies. He, he's killed by the, by the fall. He's up on the third story, so that would be maybe 40 feet off, off the ground, something like that. It's a good long way. And uh, he was crushed. And um, so they go, Paul hurries down there and um, puts his arms around him, similar to Elijah and Elisha raising uh, dead people in the Old Testament, puts his arms around him and then says, don't be alarmed, he's alive. So it reminds me of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter. You know, why are you weeping? The, the girl is not dead, but only sleeping. And so Paul actually brings this young man to life. So this is one of the few accounts of resurrection that we have in the New Testament. It's alluded to frequently, but it doesn't happen that often. The accounts, there's only three in Jesus' life, and then there's, I guess, two in the book of Acts because Peter raises Dorcas from the dead. And then there's this one. Um, and I think there's some references. But other than that, this is it. Mm. And so he raises Eutychus from the dead. And so they go back up and they eat a meal together. And to answer your question, the people are greatly encouraged because they've heard incredible teaching and now uh, a miracle of raising the dead. Andy, what final thoughts do you have for us on these verses that we've looked at? Well, I think what we need to do is look at the big picture. And the big picture is it is very difficult to do this gospel ministry. The, the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth is the taking of enemy territory. Satan fights. Hmm. And so do the people who follow satanic religions. Every false religious system is backed up by demonic power, hmm. all of them. You know, as, as Paul says in Corinthians, the sacrifices offered by pagans are offered to demons. And that tells you everything you need to know. So demons impersonate Allah. They impersonate the Hindu gods and goddesses. They impersonate Artemis until it's time to leave them and go to some other uh, pattern. And so basically... The gospel is taking enemy territory from Satan and demons, and they don't give it up lightly. Uh, and their human henchmen are, are fanatics and passionate about their false religions. And so it's going to result in, in martyrs. It's going to result in death. The, the greatest false religion that ever will have been in history is yet to come. Mm -hmm. And that is of the Antichrist and the false prophet that will cause people to worship him as a god. And that'll be basically the entire world except the elect. Mm. And so that's yet to come. And what will it be like then to oppose that false religion, that demonic or satanic religion? You'll have to do so with your life, um, be willing to, to die. So what I learned from this is the difficulty of sharing the gospel, uh, the expectation that people who oppose us will be passionate about their views, but not be intimidated by that, still tell the truth. Well, this has been episode 39 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 40, entitled Paul's Farewell to the Ephesian Elders, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 38. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. 
Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.